Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, hosted by Josh Abatoy and Tymon Klein. Our mission is to promote a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day, rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hello and welcome back to the American Reformer podcast. You've got uh, me, your host, Josh Abatoy, executive director. You've got Tymon Klein, the editor-in-chief. And today we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Pastor Jeff Wright. He's the senior pastor of Midway Baptist Church in Cookville, Tennessee, um, a fellow uh, native of the Volunteer State and uh, a great follow on Twitter where you can find him. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Gentlemen, it is my pleasure. I really appreciate being asked. Awesome. Well, Jeff, you know, we wanted, we've been having a series of conversations with different pastors. You know, we talked to, um, we talked to Yuri Brito, uh, I guess a couple shows back and asked him about how he thought about his role leading the CREC. Uh, and then we had Chris Wiley on and we talked to Chris a lot about how he viewed the vocation of the pastor and um, how to inspire a young man to go into ministry and sort of the um, all of the ways in which being a pastor, uh, you know, can be something that can be very appealing to, you know, young, godly, ambitious men um, and how we can do a better job of attracting men like that into the ministry. Um, I, I think that, you know, maybe to start our conversation off today, we can kind of continue to explore some of those themes. Um, you are uh, you've written about this. I think you've submitted resolutions about this to the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but but you are um, you have a heart for rural ministry for the church in the rural area or the small town. And you know I've been seeing some studies on the on these churches that um, you know even though a lot of the major evangelical institutions are really focused on resourcing churches in the city right now there's actually sort of an emerging crisis with with the rural churches, especially across the Bible Belt. There's a lot of small churches with 50 or 75 members that have been going there for, you know, maybe they've survived 100 or 150 years. And uh, a lot of them are closing up right now because they can't find pastors. Um, I, maybe just to set the table, tell us a little bit about your background and tell us what what kind of drew you back to ministry in small town, rural Tennessee? Yeah, so I was converted um, at, a, at a small church. Now, if you drove to where the church is today, it's it's pretty large, and it's, uh, it's kind of remarkable. We used to call it the church in the cornfield, the big church in the cornfield. Um, at one point in the time I was attending, there was a young man and a, a child and a young man we had a particularly gifted pastor and the church grew rapidly. And so it became, you know, comparable to some of the bigger churches building wise in our area, but started life as a small church. Um, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I did not think I would be, uh, I would be living where I am today, which is backed up to the farm that my family has been farming for uh, at least four generations. Uh, I thought I would do what many in my age group, I'm sort of part of that young, restless and reformed, generation, I thought I would move on, head out, and uh, live somewhere else, drop back in on the old home place every now and then, right, holidays. Uh, what really came down, you know, what, what really pushed me to 
make what choice I had. Obviously, the Lord's sovereign in where he's going to place you. And I can't just call a church up and say, you know, as a Baptist, hey, I should be your pastor. Um, but I remember throwing in to this area I live in now saying, these are the people I love the most. They're the people I'm most interested in seeing, not just, you know, reach with the gospel, but become disciples who obey all that Christ commands. And so I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to shoot my resume shots or my application shots at this area. I ended up taking a job with uh, a regional trucking company because the family needed food. And in a roundabout way, uh, in God's providence, 12 years ago, he called me to the church I currently pastor. I had done student ministry in East Tennessee for five years. Um, my first pastorate was in a nearby, even more rural community that I pastored for five years. Uh, but it was, you know, it, leaving East Tennessee, I thought for seminary, but landing back in my hometown was largely a matter of, I love these people. I want to serve these people. Let's just aim at that. Got it. So did you, did at any point when you were in seminary or whatever, did you ever have like a, you know, did you ever have a moment where you wanted to go like plant a church in Portland, Oregon or anything? You know, I, I never had that as the sort of uh, big dream of my heart, but I was certainly very open to that. I'm someone who I enjoy travel. And I, I would say even more importantly, you know, you hate to admit how influenceable you are uh, at certain stages in your life, but that was the vision that was sort of sold, right? I mean, um, by the time I was finishing up my master's degree, Platt was David Platt was ascendant, if not triumphant. And so the vision was, you know, basically God's calling is best understood through kind of a misery index. And you're not going to be faithful if there's not a high misery quotient in your calling. And so I was very open to those things. Um, but God in his good providence, someone along the way had taught me that, you know, to see what doors God opens and then also where your natural affections at and pursue that until God says, no, that's the wrong course. And thankfully I was able to step around the, what, what now is very clear, uh, the, the failures of that vision of ministry that Chan and Platt sold a lot of books off of without intentionally knowing why I was doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I, I, I recall that that time period as well. Like I didn't go to seminary, but I had a lot of friends in college who, who went to seminary. And, you know, I think that, I, I mean, even as a college kid, you know, you, you, you enjoy traveling, you enjoy um, getting out of your hometown and seeing the world a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, probably some of that's probably unavoidable for everybody, but was what was happening at that time was you had these guys who were really kind of sanctifying that instinct. Like it was almost more, you know, aspiring to go to some exotic location to do ministry was somehow you know, more godly than um, aspiring to return to your hometown to minister, uh, which, Absolutely. which I think is like an inversion, right? Because it's, it's like, um, I, we all grant that sometimes people have a special calling to, to travel and, and, you know, do missions overseas and all of that. Um, but, you know, the ordinary way of things, I think, in the Christian life is for people to, um, you know, to minister to the communities that they know that they kind of organically uh, grew up in and have connections with. 
absolutely right. And um, there, there is a dynamic to that. Uh, that's that's a challenge, right? The, the idea Jesus says in his own day that a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown. Um, that's a that's a legitimate challenge to that idea. I'll go back to pastor where I'm from, but it's not insurmountable. And I also don't know that it is a bigger challenge than, for instance, the uh, the young man who would have been in my circumstances moving to a city environment that is. Um, sort of inherently degrading to the human condition and slowly conforms him, you know, sort of the killer, what, what fell out of the killer model, slowly conforms him away from the core values that launched him into this desire to, to pastor and serve the Lord in the local church. It, and, you know, corrupts him in such a way that those values are displaced with something that is close in appearance, but ends up being a counterfeit, something like social justice or uh, something along those lines. You know, if you're going to ask me which is the challenge I prefer, well, I, I prefer the challenge of winning the um, the the gentleman that worked with my mom and remembers me running around the office over the challenge of trying to resist what appears to be uh, one of the strongest cultural forces present right now, if not in history, which is cities. It's just hard to stay human in a city. I wondered the uh, I know we're, we'll probably get to uh, talking more about training for pastors um, in a little bit. But I, I was while you were talking, recalling how much time, you know, the we all know, of course, like the Westminster Assembly spends a lot of time on the, the catechism and the, the confession. But mm -hmm. they they spend a uh, huge amount of time as per the direction of Parliament, you know, figuring out um, not only how to examine pastors that were already in place, but where to place new ones. And they would sure. kind of shuffle them around. And one of the things that uh, in reading about that you see is like they were very um, sensitive to the types of people and communities that pastors were being sent to and wanted them to fit. Right. Like the, the so I think the way that at least from my understanding, a lot of people handle their ministry placement today is, you know, whatever whatever you're interested in, kind of on a whim at, you know, 25, uh, whatever, wherever your passions are, you know, I want to be. Uh, in this foreign country or that foreign country, and there's no one kind of standing over them saying, well, that may be what interests you, but you're actually best suited for these people, not only because of your own background and gifts, but because they'll receive you. And a guy from New York is not going to be received well, presumably, in, in Cookville where, and vice versa, right, in, in, or in terms of reaching those people and kind of understanding their their particular uh, problems and, and uh, you know, successes. So, I just think that I don't see a lot of people writing on that aspect um, that, you know, maybe Providence has has conditioned you to be better for a certain people than others. Well, I, and, and brother, I would also even just sort of think through like how, it, what degree of insight into the human psyche is required to even make that knowable, right? I mean, is, is this something that God's given to to the children of men to know in sort of a personality profile sense, who's going to be, um, suited for a certain area and who is, um, you know, wh what people are going to respond well to their sense of what this individual is gifted for. Um, that's just such a, I, I guess, I guess the, or the, the point I'm making here comes from a frustration with the way that uh, personality profiling, um, pragmatic, 
business sense principles have come to dominate evangelicalism. Um, I just think that some of these things make, uh, are, are attempting to make a science out of something that is not. And, and, and a lot of these guys who are selling this idea of quote unquote leadership this way, it, it's a grift industry. And that, that's Ed Stetzer's, that's how he steals money from the church. Um, I would go back if I were thinking through the process kind of from ground up, I would go back to Jamie Smith before he went crazy. And I would want to know for the applicant, what is your vision of the good life? You know, when you, when you picture what it would be like to live in the Lord's blessing, what's the background in, in the image in your mind? And that's how I would be thinking through it. And then secondly, I would encourage the applicant to be something like a husband, which again, Christ loving the church is an, is an appropriate model. When you take the church, she is yours to care for. You're committed, pal. Um, we're not going to make it easy for you to bail when things get tough. And uh, I mean, I'm saying that as a Baptist, you know, Baptist fire pastors at the drop of a hat. But when I, uh, when I took my current church, I was talking to the campus outreach uh, director at the time. He was a good friend. And I said, man, if I have my druthers, I will die here. And uh, he said, you know, he encouraged me. He said, I think that's a great approach to a pastor. Just go ahead and go buy a, go, go buy a plot in a graveyard nearby and say, this is where I'll be until I need this. And so I'm not trying to argue with you, but I do think some of our ideas about how, you know, a presbytery places a candidate or how a seminary recommends a young man to a place. I mean, I think it's probably beyond the human grasp. We, we have to love people and we have to see our, you know, we have to have a vision in our heart of the, the best life the Lord could bless us with being deeply intertwined with them. And so I guess, you know, I mean, when we talk to young men who are thinking about the pastorate uh, that come through our church, that's, that's how I'm talking to them about it. I'm not particularly cared about their giftedness because I didn't have a sense of my giftedness when I took my wife, but leading her well has shaped my character and my energies and things I've tried to, I say leading her well, attempting to do so. It's shaped what I've given myself to, to try to serve her and my family well. I think the pastor is similar to that. Yeah, well, I, I should have, that's my fault. I should have known any mention of a authority over a pastor would exercise a Baptist so that, that it would, wouldn't be received well, uh, you know, Presbyterians <laughs> mucking about in, in church life. But no, but, uh, you know, in terms of the managerial managerialism and, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, I I usually use Rick Warren as like a stand-in for that, but there's mm. many you could pick, and you you mentioned other ones. Uh, you know, I I would totally agree that that is corrupted. Um, you know, th this way we think about um, the pastoral ministry generally, and then also these guys, you know, trying to select where they'll where they'll go or or looking for a church to pastor, and and certainly what goes along with that, I would I, I would say is you know, holding out certain models of celebrity um, that you've, you've mm -hmm. kind of already alluded to that as well, which I think is deeply unhealthy. It's not that we shouldn't have, um, you know, models that in some ways we try to emulate because of godliness and, uh, you know, faithfulness in these things, but that's very different than the, than the celebrity. Um, I remember one of my seminary professors would always ask people at the beginning of every semester who, the, who was most influential um, on their Christian life. And, and almost no one would ever say their own pastor. You know, it was yeah. always Piper, right. Keller, somebody that they watched on YouTube or went to a conference. And that, you know, that's probably twofold. Maybe those people, a lot of them didn't have good 
local pastors. I mean, that's the case of a lot. You mentioned the YRR stuff. A lot of those guys finding things on YouTube is because they had, you know, crappy churches and didn't have a good Mm -hmm. pastor. But you have to imagine that some of them probably did, but it wasn't living up to this standard of celebrity. And then you wonder what they're, why they're actually at seminary, if that's the person who most influenced them and what they're looking for. Oh, right. Absolutely. I mean, to to both of us, I'll try to to go more quickly on this, but when this era of church history is kind of in the can, uh, Keller's center church is going to be maybe the most significant uh, ecclesiological strategy book that has been published. Uh, I remember that. I mean, I I really legitimately think that book led the Southern Baptist Convention to their sin city strategy, where every egg that we had in terms of evangelism and outreach went to cities and it was parasitically drawn from, you know, donors at churches who are tithing to their local body in areas that are radically different. And so when you talk about, you know, celebrity models, uh, the vision you cast in front of young seminarians, center church is at least anecdotally, um, one of the most profound switches I saw flipped as I came of age as a young minister. Um, the other point there uh, that, you know, we've got to, um, we've got to think through even what we're, what we're trying to sell people on in terms of what ministry is, what does it mean to be a pastor, right? You know, when you, you mentioned uh, Rick Warren, there's Hybels, there's Stanley, but that filters all the way down to, uh, I mean, in, in some ways, the critical race theory uptake in evangelicalism was another expression of church growth. Mm-hmm. This is a new way to bring um, individuals into churches that we feel like aren't normally represented. That kind of thinking, I mean, there has to be a thorough exorcism of that kind of pragmatic approach to ministry. I think for evangelicals to thrive again, we're not going away because I think authentically we're, we represent the tradition uh, of Christ, but for us to thrive again, we will have to stop thinking about uh, numerical gains as the chief indicator of uh, mm-hmm. of a successful ministry. Yeah, I remember we had Aaron Wren on some time back this year, and I just remember him saying how much of like the the website branding for the SBC would have you know stock photos of like the New York skyline. Absolutely. Which just which just indicates, you know, this is the this is the vision, this is the model, this is what success looks like, this is where all our resources are going. Now, obviously, you could uh, it's it's perfectly fair to think of New York City as definitely a mission field. Um, it's a largely mm-hmm. godless mm-hmm. area, but it's it's funny that uh, you know that doesn't reflect most of what SBC life would be like. Um, is that picture right? That would be like like having. Um, you know, Shanghai or something on there. It's like, well, mm-hmm. okay, great. You know, great. But this isn't, this isn't exactly what it, what all the pastors are going to be doing. But um, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, obviously you're making bold predictions, but I think there's a, there's much to commend those predictions based on what we've seen over the past several years. That's for sure. Well, I can tell you too, as someone who remembers this shift I'm talking about around Center Church, the killer vision of, you know, win the city, win the culture, right? It was sort of like mm-hmm. that television show, Heroes, Save the Cheerleader, Save the World. Um, <laughs> I remember at the time realizing what was happening. This, this isn't something that wasn't um, 
I didn't know what, you know, how catastrophic the consequences would be, but there were plenty of us who saw, man, this is a very strange strategy mm-hmm. and we're neglecting, um, we're neglecting basically the people who define who we are. So I can't remember if it was the year he was elected president or the year after, but when, when Danny Aiken was up for, um, I can't remember exactly which position he was up for, but he, it was kind of when Danny Aiken was ascendant in terms of his popularity, he had stepped out of Al Mohler's shadow and he was heading up. I sat at a nine marks at nine event or something at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptists. And I, I got Danny's ear and I said, Danny, we need to go dollar for dollar. If we're putting a dollar into church planting in an urban environment, we need to put a dollar into church revitalization in the area that Southern Baptists actually live in a, in a geographic footprint. And he was like, yeah, great idea. And you never heard another word of it, right? It, it, it wasn't fashionable. And I, I was helped along the way there. But someone around that same time had said, why does no one want to plant a church reaching um, reaching a trailer park, right? Why is it always upwardly socially mobile suburbanites or urbanites? Hmm. And as soon as you hear that in that context where, where your denomination is deciding uh, we're going to send every resource into planting in urban environments, you realize something is stinky in Nashville, right? And uh, we should have seen, again, I don't don't think anybody knew how catastrophic this would be, but we should have seen that was a foolish choice to shift all resources away from basically who we were. Yeah. And, and um, just to, just to underscore that, I, I mean, we're seeing, you know, people are aspiring to plant like the 50th, strip mall church in Brooklyn, New York mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, there's, there's a, uh, but meanwhile, I think despising much of the South where there are small Southern Baptist congregations that have to close their doors because they can't find a pastor. Mm-hmm. They already have the people. And I mean, even just from like sort of a financial perspective, like if there's already somewhat of a giving base, it might actually be a lower investment on like NAM's part to, you know, you know, they, they could per- potentially throw in to defray, um, you know, three or four small church revitalization projects in the South for every one, uh, filled, you know, filled church plant that they try to get off the ground in Portland, Oregon or Brooklyn, sure. New York. And sure. so there's a, just from like an investment perspective, it's, it's weird. And there's a biblical principle under underlying that, which is go, go where the harvest is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, so I, I think it's, I think it's spot on that the, um, the harvest that's available in the Bible belt has been despised by a lot of, uh, a lot of our denominational strategy and probably not just Southern Baptist, probably, I'm sure there's a comparable issue in the PCA and elsewhere, but, um, Jeff, before we, I do want to move on to SBC stuff, but I have a couple more questions I want to hear from you on, on ministry, your, your specific ministry and wisdom you have for people that are going into ministry. So just g- give me the pitch, like just assume, assume I'm like a young man, ambitious man who, um, you know, godly wants to go into ministry. Why should I, why should I aspire to develop a heart for rural ministry out of all the options that are going to be in front of me when I get into seminary? Well, I think you've got to start with, um, 
the way of life you'll be participating in. And I'll just be up front with you. Maybe this is too whiny on my part, but the people that I pastor and the people who are eligible, you know, sort of in my community to become parts of my church are in some ways, some of the most despised people in our society by cultural elites. My neighbors, just by virtue of their skin tone, their political commitments are assumed to be racist, bigots, misogynists, everything that's wrong with society, right? Um, when you actually come to live among these people, you find out that there is so many just sort of assumed antidotes to widely recognized cultural problems elsewhere. So in my part of the world, we're not insulated from, say, the crisis of manhood that's still going on among us. You know, we have these guys who are trapped in adolescence, playing video games, not taking a family you know, that that's still here, but the rhythms of life connected to blue collar and agricultural lifestyles are, are actually natural preventatives of those problems. Um, the idea of thick communities where people feel like they have meaningful relationships with other people, um, it, you know, it's sort of a trope in these areas. But when you're sick or, you know, God forbid, a loved one is dead, you will have a line of casseroles coming in your door with people who, you know, some of them are superficially concerned, but many of them are going to actually be concerned enough to, to go out of their way to help you. And it's not just a casserole they're offering. It's sort of the way to start the conversation about what are the needs you have. Um, I, I think, I, I, honestly, I think the pitch is easier after the great sort than it was before. You know, when you see cities on fire, you see the products of urban, um, uh, basically Democrat urban policies playing out with these, you know, grocery store wastelands that are developed. Um, you, you, you know, you look around and people are fleeing out of cities to more rural areas. I'm going to tell you, look, you, you're going to be loving people who cultural elites hate. You're going to find a lifestyle that is incredibly rewarding and gives you lots of opportunities to explore a, uh, a, a wide range of gifts. And also everybody wants to be, <laughs> I mean, this is where most people want to be. If you get an opportunity by virtue of your calling that, that there's a local church that wants to help you have that kind of opportunity. Well, brother, you've got a, you've got a leg up on what a lot of people who are living in New York city right now desperately wish they had a mechanism to, to activate. Yeah. You mentioned the great sort. This is something I've thought about a fair bit and, and talked about some, but what, um, I know mean, you're just shifting gears to that for a second. Have you, how directly have you seen the effects of that in your local area and in your church? And what, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some good things. What are some of the good things and what are some of the challenges that come with the big people movement that we're seeing? Yeah, some of the good things are um, you have uh, people showing up who either know what they're looking for or they have this generalized sense that they need something different that the church provides. So these people who are escaping what I would call godless policies, right? These uh, people who are leaving cities because they're urban childless playgrounds and this kid that they have and they love clearly isn't welcome because nowhere in, in the city is designed to accommodate them. Um, you know, the, again, the things I just talked about, how, how dangerous life and the, modern secular city can be. People are either coming and going, oh, actually, I want to get to a red state Bible Belt remnant area. 
or they're showing up being like, I didn't like the chaos. The chaos isn't here. And the church is, you know, pretty, it, it's a pretty easy uh, conversation. Absolutely. Let me just tell you why the chaos isn't here. Uh, why we have what you came looking for. Um, the people who show up here too, particularly the more informed ones, understand that uh, the better way of life that they're seeking is fragile and that they can't be cavalier about it. So a lot of the people who grew up in my hometown with me are, are just very naive about the way our community functions and operates. Um, they think everything's going to be fine because everything has been fine. What are you talking about? You know, we, we kind of live, uh, we live that uh, tried in a small town uh, issue. What they don't realize is there's strategies to displace those kind of communities uh, and to disrupt them. The, the refugees who are coming in are very aware and they want to be, uh, they want to be active in opposing those things. The challenge side is that, well, two things. There are people who understand themselves to be sort of conservative in a secular way. So the way I would illustrate that to you is the difference between someone who thinks it's okay to have a bumper sticker that says, let's go Brandon versus the person who thinks that uh, it's okay to have a bumper sticker that is much more uh, immediately publicly vulgar uh, that says what the crowd was chanting when the reporter said they were chanting, let's go Brandon. And so you have these people whose sense of being a conservative is largely defined by uh, hostility towards secular progressives, but you know they're meeting it as a secular quote unquote conservative and helping them see the difference there and how um, even how that's inconsistent with what they say they're they're looking for can be very challenging because you know uh, they'll look at you like you're a crazy liberal. Um, the other one the other challenge I would point to is that there is something about an agricultural way of life uh, being connected to land that, that connects you to natural law that develops a kind of person who inescapably is aware that they live in God's world, but you need land to do that. You know, I hate the phrase undeveloped land. I get why people say that, but land that is developed to feed humans is developed land, but you need it to sort of get into these rhythms I'm talking about of natural law that reminds you that you're not sovereign. There's someone outside of you who is. And every time, you know, a 70-acre farm is turned into multiple two-acre tracks that people will live in for three years and then sell, move on, upgrade from, the kind of uh, deep connectedness to a single spot on earth, to use the language of... Uh, Wendell Berry starts getting eroded pretty quickly. And I think that long-term undercuts the um, background assumptions required to have the kind of place that I'm talking about where people want to live. Got it. That's, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the couple things to follow up on there, your first point, your first challenge um, about sort of the, maybe you could call it like the, uh, the undiscipled recent convert who's been driven by political factors. That's a really interesting one to me. I've seen that a lot anecdotally recently where I just, and actually it's a lot of, it's a lot of young men, a lot of whom didn't even grow up in church who are seeing the modern insanity and 
you know, and, and they're turning into seekers and they're showing up at church. I mean, I've got these, I've got guys like this at my local church. I've got guys like this that I run into in work circles. It's a, it's a fascinating dynamic. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also interesting. You, you imagine some of these guys, baby Christians, you know, coming, maybe coming to repentance because they realize first how crazy our politics are and how insane modern life is. And then they realize their own personal need for repentance and their need for a savior. But, you know, you imagine some of these people showing up at sort of your, your middle of the fairway suburban evangelical church. And it's like, it, they would just walk right out the door. You know, um, there's a, there's a, there's a very particular type of formation that needs to go on with some of the converts that we're seeing right now. And I do think we're seeing a lot of converts, but it's, it's, you know, <laughs> Like, I, I kind of cringe to think about how how your kind of vanilla suburban church would would try to go about discipling guys like that. Oh yeah, right. I mean, a lot of our pastors would be afraid of them. Yeah, uh, and the other thing too is even developing a common language with that person. You know, the the guy who thinks it's based to fly a blank you Biden um, flag on the bus route that runs through my house. It, it's just not well prepared for me to say, brother, can I swap that flag for a let's go Brandon flag without him, you know, without coming off like I'm <laughs> the the soft man that he tried to flee from. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we leave that point, I, I did find it in interesting to see. Um, I don't know if, if you guys read the article at Unheard and then I think Carl Truman wrote a uh, reflection on it at first things, but you know, where Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, announced her conversion, right, to Christianity. And I think, you know, what was striking about that is, you know, of course, we all hope it's it's real and sincere and she's she's discipled and all that, you know, contrary to popular belief, us Christian nationalists do care about actual faith. So we do want to see that. Um, but, you know, there was there was no real gospel message in her, you know, so-called testimony that was public, her, her kind of coming out as Christian. It was all about the civilizational aspects, right, of nothing mm -hmm. but Christianity is sufficient to hold Western civilization together in the face of its current challenges, so on and so forth, which is, which is totally true. Um, but then it just right. didn't go further. So, you're, you know, you're assuming she needs more discipleship and, uh, and become more true, mature in the faith. But you saw the type of people who, who were willing to celebrate that. Um, and it's, of course, all the cosmopolitan sort of intellectual side of, of people who, let's say they're conservative adjacent, to be nice to them. Um, but then when you when you talk about the kind of guys you and Josh were just talking about now, you know, sort of the the uh, the guys who are terminally online under pseudonyms, but, you know, are probably high performing professionals, but are a little uh, more based than they should be, we might say a little edgy. And uh, a lot of them are single men, but most of them are white men. No one wants to touch those guys with similar type conversion stories, you know, that's driving them mm -hmm. to to the church, hopefully to good churches. The, that's a sort of mission field that no one feels sympathetic towards uh, because it's not respectable and it's it's scary and it offends our sensibilities. Like you were saying, it takes a guy who's willing to see the more vulgar flag fly by and not, uh, you know, <laughs> let his knee jerk reaction get the best of him uh, for the sake of evangelizing those people. So that does take a special kind of conditioning and, and probably uh you know awareness of what it what those guys are running from and, and what actually is going on and i don't think the keller model has conditioned people to be sympathetic to that right i mean the the dominant ministerial sort of ethos would echo the cultural zeitgeist that says oh that's a toxic masculine 
individual. He may become a mass shooter. You know, it just freights all of these terrible expectations onto someone like that who, you know, um, if if we saw someone sitting on a park bench weeping while holding a, a, a you know, in their, in their, on their smartphone, holding a picture of their family, you know, the current evangelical ethos knows how to respond to that, but that it's very similar to the guy who's flying that flag. He is signaling to you that he is looking for something that is important and that the church should have a, have a response to. And um, one of the things that's, that's been important to, to my thinking in the last couple of years is I would much rather try to help a young man know how to, or even an older man who's kind of had a crisis and come out on the far side saying, I need to make some changes. I would much rather help that person use their strength appropriately. I'd rather be involved in that project. Hey man, you're kind of a bull in the China shop right now. How do we yoke you in such a way that the strength is going in a good direction? I'd much rather have that project than trying to put a spine into a jellyfish. (laughs) And so, you know, there's a tremendous resource available to the church here. And the culture's desperate for it, dying for it. Um, but if we don't break through the cultural and the evangelical programming that, ooh, these guys are scary and dangerous and look how mean they are, uh, we're going to neglect, to use what Josh said earlier, we're going to neg- neglect a very white harvest field. You, uh, <laughs> time in, you've probably heard this a couple times before, so sorry. But Jeff, you, you touched on one of my favorite sayings that I use is like, uh, my my ultimate maxim when I ever make a hiring decision is better a pit bull that you have to rein in than a bunny that you have to kick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's just not, there's not enough guys like that. They don't grow on trees. They get stuff done. Sometimes they break a couple eggs to make their omelets, but those are the kind of people who change the trajectory of things, change the status quo. We need in a lot of different domains in the church and in society and culturally and business, we need guys who are disruptive and like kind of wild, you know? Um, <laughs> so, uh, didn't, uh, didn't yeah. Walter Durante say that about Stalin in the New York times he had to, you know, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. So what you're saying is we need Protestant <laughs> Stalins. Is that what I'm, I'm here? No, no, please we don't. We moved no, on don't, from Franco to yeah. stop straight to Stalin as everyone feared. No, let's, uh, yeah, don't give our enemies any more ammo. Um, yeah, no, that, that, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's good. Well, I know we don't, you know, we don't have forever today, so we should probably at this point, uh, start turning over to, to the Southern Baptist convention a little bit. We've already started, started hinting at this, but Jeff, I mean, you've been pretty active in, um, Southern Baptist life, you know, in terms of commenting, um, submitting resolutions, speaking, um, organizing, and I mean, you've you've run you've run for office, but um, what what are you what are you seeing this year in the lead up to Indianapolis? Um, you know, how are you feeling about how that convention is going to go? <laughs> Josh, I, I wish um, I wish I could tell you I was more resolved on this uh, red pill days and black pill days. Um, I am thankful that Mike Law's amendment has sort of crystallized the conflict in a way that has needed to be done for a long time. You know, the the great barrier to a healthy SBC in recent years has been the idea that anything could even be wrong and how you might know that. Well, Mike Law has made a very, um, again, clear point in front of us all that, oh, yeah, in fact, things can be wrong. It appears that they are wrong. 
And uh, this is how we got wrong on these things. So I'm thankful for that. I know that there are more signs of intentional participation in the SBC annual meeting uh, than any time I can remember. So I'm encouraged by that. Uh, I'm encouraged by how many guys that I didn't know this time, 14, 15 months ago that I do know now who, you know, have their heads on straight about the Southern Baptist convention and the dangers it's in. So on a red pill day, man, I'm energized and I feel like we've got really good things going on. And maybe, maybe this is the year that we can make a significant change. Uh, Black pill me has a friend who every year at the annual meeting after it goes depressingly and we get our teeth kicked in. Um, he says, don't worry guys, next year's your year. It's like being a Cubs fan. And, um, you know, even as we have this uptick in involvement, which is entirely possible, uh, you know, possibly su sufficient to to win the day. We also never had a time when the bad guys who are holding denominational purse strings and running institutions have more control over the annual meeting. And so um, those are the two things that I'm seeing. Uh, there's more organic energy towards fixing what needs to be fixed. And there is also more institutional energy in making sure that no one can get uh, a contrary message in front of any substantial number of Southern Baptists. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you put that in a very terse way. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, you know, I remember I first started getting more involved in convention life in Nashville in 21. Mm -hmm. And that was just such a different era because you had, you know, back at that time, at that point, you know, you had a divided executive committee, yeah. right? You had different factions, like on the executive committee, different factions on all the entity boards. Uh, you had even some competition amongst the entities, uh, amongst the entity heads. Um, but I think more than, you know, I, I mean, at least since then, you're, you're absolutely right. The story has been a consolidation of uh, people that are very agreeable to the kind of, uh, I guess, the j sort of J.D. Greer or, you know, whatever you want to call it, the sort of SBC institutionalist line. Uh, it does seem it does seem that there's been a bit of a tightening of the shield wall mm -hmm. at the entity level around that agenda. Um, I mean, even even looking at the, the law amendment, again, a great example, passes by something like 80 percent from a floor vote. Um, and then is is sort of, you know, opposed and undermined by this contingent of former SBC presidents, J.D. Greer and and a handful of other former presidents all line up at a microphone in solidarity to oppose it. And of course, it, it passed over the opposition of of the uh, the motions committee as well. So um, it's it's very interesting. It's it's really setting up for a, a very uh, clean kind of classic. Uh, grassroots versus bureaucrats clash. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even that dynamic you just pointed to, people, are, you know, I'm totally comfortable being called conspiratorially. If if you can find the video from the annual meeting, the passing of that high presidential council, um, that clearly is a mechanism to sit in judgment on anything decided by the SBC annual meeting. Um, and then, decide what can and cannot pass. I mean, it, it's nakedly transparent. The way that passed was uh, aided by 
platform hijinks where Bart kind of powers it through over and against objections. I remember I was standing at the microphone and uh, one of Bryant Wright's little uh, hirelings said, it already passed guys. You missed your chance or whatever as they were walking off because it, it went so quickly from the moderator that uh, he, he was right. We had to catch up to, Oh my gosh, the fight's already done because the chair has moved. Um, I legitimately think microphones were turned off at certain crucial votes like the um, immigration resolution so that dissident voices wouldn't have quick and easy access to microphones to voice their opposition. Um, I mean, you're literally talking about people who control the microphones at a meeting where Southern Baptist one time a year gets to speak directly to certain controversial or uh, identity defining issues in the Southern Baptist convention. And these guys, I'm very, very persuaded are happy to turn the mics off if the wrong person happens to get a hold of it. Yeah. And my people love it. So if I can use the language of, of scripture, right? I mean, the, there are so many people who are just like, well, that's just, everything's fine. It's the rabble rousers. Who's the problem. I guess I'm, I'm happy that I get to go to lunch early. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's just, it strikes me that the, the, um, the, the current, the current crop of leaders in the SBC are very short term in their thinking in the sense that they like, it's not even just from an organizational rationalist perspective, it's not a recipe for long-term success. If you sort of ignore feedback from the rank and file mm -hmm. and there's no secret, there's no secret that, that the, um, that the leaders of the SBC are wildly out of step with the constituency. Like this is not, it, it barely needs to be proven, but just to sort of illustrate it, you've got 90% of the SBC voting for Donald Trump and you've got Russell Moore going on MSNBC saying that Trump voters are white supremacists mm -hmm. and advocating for amnesty through the ERLC, which they're doing to this day. Mm -hmm. Like you could go, we could go on all day about this, but it's no secret at all. But the, the wild thing is just that, you know, you used to have leaders who, even if they had personal views that were out of step with the rank and file, they would have felt a need to like show some responsiveness to the rank and file. Right. The current guys don't even try to do that. And what they're going to do, I mean, if that, if that situation persists, I mean, either they're going to have to be driven from leadership or they will destroy the convention. They'll just drive, they'll drive all the good people out. And then they'll be sitting over like a, a weird kind of rump convention uh, that will, you know, ultimately just, just putter away. Um, and uh, because, you know, you can't, the, the, the whole thing, I, I mean, I think largely it's also driven by self-interest, right? I mean, there's a lot of, um, you don't speak ill of other Baptists because when you get fired from one place, another Baptist is going to hire you. So there's like a very, um, there's sort of this mutual deference and respect. And, you know, it's almost like a union, but, you know, you've got to, you've got to have your card. You got to stay in good standing. And that whole dynamic is, is it really about the, it's about the self-interest of the people that are in leadership and maintaining those positions within leadership without any thought to what's the long-term sustainable thing for the convention. Oh, brother, yeah. that's, uh, that's exactly yeah. right. And it, it is, it is baffling to watch them replicate step-by-step step the modernist approach to the church and think that it's going to go differently this time. We accommodate ourselves to the culture increasingly. And this time, guys, it's going to be another great awakening. It's not going to be us shuffling off into, uh, obsolete status the way that 
you know, happened with all the mainline churches. It It's baffling because I either learned church history from some of these guys who are doing this or alongside guys who are doing this. And it, they're so intellectually and culturally isolated from their own story. And I, I, all I can assume is that this is when, when the Bible talks about God judging someone with a darkened mind. That's all I can think of here because it is so obvious the course they're on and yet they're entirely oblivious to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and one other thing, if you'll allow me. Sure. N- notice that they're clearly, you know, the, the regnant, uh, group is is showing quite clearly that they are incompetent and unable to manage um the spc is almost broke uh multiple lawsuits that have alienated both uh conservatives and uh leftists uh, uh you know an abuse community an, an abuse claimant community that helped swell not just bart barber but his you know his friends uh that he kind of worked with at SBC Voices into key positions of leadership. They're alienating everyone. And what is crystal clear is they they were basically elected on the rhetoric of the current executive committee at the time of Bart's election is corrupt and evil and incompetent. We will do better. And and what's what's immediately evident right now is that the reason they thought they would do better is because they saw themselves as pure and noble-hearted and of good intention. And that was going to be enough to help them navigate serious and complex, difficult uh, institutional issues. Uh, and they have no resources to do so. They, they were really just, they were really just leaning on, but we're us and that'll be enough. And clearly that's well, such it, a stupid it, show. I thought so, some of this is um, maybe we've talked about this before, but I, I think some of this, I, I have to pin on the young restless reformed crowd. Absolutely. A little Absolutely. bit because, you know, I, like, I don't know if you've ever read John Piper's book, Brothers Were Not Professionals. Yeah. And I think that actually was a good corrective to some trends in in uh, managing local churches at the time that Piper wrote it. But running running a convention, a con- the convention is not a local church. The convention is a massive organization with a $500 million budget per year that you 100% need professional wisdom for running. And it's being run like a church camp. And the problem is like all all of those, all of those corporate formalities and and practices, the wisdom from lawyers, all of that stuff, all of that exists because men aren't angels. And Mm -hmm. when you're running this big unwieldy organization, you need that stuff. I mean, even angels would be tempted to financial impropriety uh, given, given how much money is sloshing around in the SBC with almost no controls whatsoever. And, you know, so, so there's, there's been a, I I think there's just been like this misguided um, despising of, of, you know, good godly lay wisdom um, that, you know, that really ought to be at play when you're, when you're talking about an organization of this scale, because it's not the local church. It's just a creature of prudence. Nothing in the Bible says we have to have a convention Convention is something we do to pool our resources, hopefully to advance the kingdom more efficiently than if everybody was just doing it on their own. And so it's a creature of prudence. It's a political animal. It's an organization in which you should fight and it shouldn't be run like a church camp. It should be run like a business. Right. Right. Um, and, and even those things that you're talking about, prudence, wisdom, accumulated, uh, you know, 
and refined wisdom about how you run an organization like the SBC, those are now by the regnant uh, leadership class, they're seen as acts of evil in and of themselves. And it's, it, it's, it's both, you know, side splittingly funny, but also horrifying to watch that play out. So with the, you know, the quintessential example is the idea that the executive committee had to waive attorney client privilege to really love the Lord. Well, one, you don't deny basic human rights uh, in the name of, you know, the, that basic right being immoral, right? So one, that's, that's there already. But then number two, the, the idea was it, it's the demon of democracy. We voted for them to do it. Therefore, they must. Right. And so I was telling people on social media at the time, if we vote that the executive committee has to take out a knife and cut their wrists, they do not have to do that. Congregational polity it has certain restrictions that are assumed and in place. And that kind of categorical thinking has no traction in the current SBC, at least not among the leadership class and those who have kind of been groomed by them through the North American mission. Yeah. Posey, hush. I'm sorry. Did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. <laughs> well, I hit, I hit my mute button. My dog was about to bark and I thought, I, I thought my mute button had protected uh, me. I'm sorry. I think we should, I think <laughs> no, we should just keep that in. I thought he was yelling at you, Timon. <laughs> no, I was getting ready to offer a word of encouragement to the Baptist of, you know, and you mentioned Cubs fans in 2016. Every now and then Donald Trump does get elected and the Cubs win the World Series. So it could be your year. Man, we're we're all hoping for the U catastrophe. We're all just, <laughs> you know, still in the fight looking for Gandalf to show back up. Hey, Jeff, Jeff. So so exit. We've got to wind down here, but exit question for you. Um which, uh, if you could, which SBC entity would would you run, and how would you change what it's doing? I, I would run the uh, North American Mission Board. Now, there's a big part of me that would like to have the ERLC as well, but the North American Mission Board is the mechanism by which we're supposed to be training new pastors and placing them in uh, churches that we're planting. And, I mean, this is why the North American Mission Board is the prize that the platform defends at all costs because it's not just that, you know, with their real estate movements, they've, they've become a money generator that sort of finances everything for uh, whatever the, the leadership class wants to do, but it defines the future of the convention, right? We're going to plant the kind of churches who are going to send messengers back to the Southern Baptist convention. We're, we're planting the kind of churches that are going to send a certain kind of missionary uh, to our seminaries, a certain kind of pastoral candidate to our seminaries. And so this is, you know, the North American Mission Board, more so than Lifeway, the RLC, which are sort of more immediate uh, mechanisms of influence. The North American Mission Board is the long-term shaper of the SBC under the sun. Right? I mean, obviously God is sovereign and does what he wants, but the the North American Mission Board is set up to be the means by which Southern Baptists participate in what God's doing. So immediately I would, uh, I'd take the North American Mission Board. And uh, I, I love yeah. it. I love it. I had a hunch you'd say that, but I still, it was good to hear the, <laughs> good to hear the reasoning. Um, time in any parting uh, uh, wisdom or, you know, sectarian snide remarks or anything like that. Yeah, I got my sectarian violence in early, so I'll let that 
go, I would vote. I mean, it seems to me, maybe this is this is this is like a backhanded compliment. Then I guess it is sectarian violence. Seems to me anybody can show up and vote at this SBC thing. So I'll show up and vote for Jeff to run NAM next year for sure. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's kind of, we'll take it. I'm willing to take any help in any in any way. I mean, obviously the bad guys don't care to cheat. So yeah, vote I'm really point, open. <laughs> I'm I'm willing to be real politic about it. There you go. <laughs> Uh, I have, I have a suspicion that you would be marked in found time. And I, yeah, <laughs> there's only one You're way right. to find out where is this thing in the Annapolis next year. Yeah. People yeah. should look out. Well, I mean, you still have time to become a Baptist and join a Baptist church and come as a messenger to Indianapolis. So if it would get, that. get Jeff control of Nam, I might do it for a year. That's and remind me what, what kind of church did you grow up in Timon? That's me. See, man, I know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, one someday day. we'll have to talk about Baptist apostates and uh, the Presbyterian Church treating us like their farm club system. <laughs> well, I mean, if they didn't have us, I mean, they've got to have a bench somewhere, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Jeff, thank you for joining us. Any parting thoughts before we call this one to a close? Oh, gentlemen, I uh, I found this delightful. I wish I could just sit around and talk with you guys. Uh, you know, sort of more often in casual conversation, but specifically, I appreciate the work y'all are doing through American reformer. You're one of the, uh, you're one of the groups that gives me some hope, uh, for a youth catastrophe. And, uh, I would just encourage y'all keep it up. I'm sure you, you, I know you both wear a lot of hats and so I'm sure that's demanding. I know you have families and other, uh, interests to care for, but we really appreciate what you're doing through American reformer. Hope you'll keep it up. Thank you, brother. All right. Thank you audience. Until next time. God bless. You can find American Reformer on the internet at www.americanreformer.org or on x.com, formerly Twitter, at amreformer. Don't forget to like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please consider supporting us today by making a tax-deductible donation through our secure online donation portal at americanreformer.org. That's americanreformer.org.